Come on back in. Good morning. Right, that's a couple. Good morning. I don't know. I was like, we were right there at the end of that last song. I was like, oh, no, come on. Let's just go. Let's just scrap the teaching and go. Uh, I was like, literally, I was telling the band, I'm like, I'm on the front row going, come on, go, go, take. Uh, oh, well, I guess I have to teach, so let's do this. Um, I don't ever want us to lose the value, the focus, the perspective that um, all that really matters is the presence of God. It's why we gather. It's why we meet. It's just for his glory to be known. Hey, if you have your Bibles, let's go to Jude. We've been in the book of Jude. We're going to be in chapter one because that's all there is. And we took a look last week. Um, I've probably been more gripped. I don't recall ever studying the book of Jude at this level of depth or ever even being in a room where it was taught like this. And it's interesting because if I, as I've been reading and studying Jude, I've been very, very gripped by how relevant Jude is for where we are today. How many understand we live in a world, if I say this, we live in a world that's working with everything it can to strip the gravitational pull of the moral compass out. And this is really what Jude will deal with. And as we systematically study this book, I want us to have that lens. I've been gripped by a, a, a phrase of Paul's that you'll hear me quote a lot as we study Jude. It's in Titus, actually. And he says, promote the kind of living that reflects right teaching. And I, I, my concern is that we are in a spot in our culture, we're even in a spot in the church, where there's a, ter- there's a terrible fear to call things that are wrong, wrong. And we do have to be a people that will promote the kind of living that reveals right teaching. That is one of our fundamental values. I, I, I'm, I don't want to say it because I think at times it gives people license to be stupid. But the church has always been intended to be a moral scrubbing agent in the culture. To be a people that would so stand for the righteousness of God. And it's so easy to get in arguments about the rightness of humanity. And I want to invite you to remember you're standing for the righteousness of the king of glory. You're not standing for rightness in humanity. And Jude will deal with this very issue. And it's, it's why I'm bringing it up. It's, there's no way to study Jude without having this conversation. Last week, we took a look at what I would say, just some simple thoughts about Jude's origin story, what he, what he reveals about himself. And he opens up in verse 1 and says, this letter's from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. And we just talked for a little bit about the magnitude of, of the fact that Jude counted it a higher value to be a slave than even be the, the, what most scholars believe is the half-brother of Jesus. And I thought about it all week because it's been in my mind and I just, the reality is all of us were emancipated from sin, which really theologically means we got a clean bill of health. That what the king of glory did was say to you and I, you're free. And there are some that would take that and say, cool, I'm out. 
But what, but what Jude is, is, is moving towards is a different brand of, of discipleship, a different brand of, of love affair with the king, one that would come back to the house of the king, put your ear on the door and say, you might as well just nail my ear to the door because I'm yours. I don't want to go anywhere else. Christianity is not going to take you through what's coming to the world in front of us. But making a choice to be nailed to the doorpost will. To where you could come before the king and say, it's no longer my will, it's yours. I thank you for the liberty you've given me. I thank you for the freedom you've given me. But I'm going to nail my ear to the door. I belong to you. And whatever you say is what I do. And this is what I love what Jude says, because he teaches just such a simple principle. Being free is one thing. Willingly choosing to be the slave of Christ is a, is a holistically different thing. He says, I'm writing to all you who are called to live in the love of God the Father and the care of Jesus Christ. And um, one of the words our prophetic team got this morning was, guys, you'll understand why this is hard for me to understand. They're like, yeah, we just see like flower petals everywhere. I'm like, what does that mean? Like, I just want Jesus to slap me in the back and say, good job, dude. <laughs> Getting married, that's a good word. As so we were worshiping in the first gathering, I was just praying through it, and I realized, like, there's this kindness and tenderness of Jesus that kind of unnerves us. We don't really know what to do with it. And I just want to take a second really quick, because it felt like during worship we were supposed to do this. Just close your eyes. Holy Spirit, would you just come invade this room? Lord, like, like a five-sense invasion. Just the weightiness of your presence, your kindness. That your church today would feel the weight of being your beloved. Lord, that, that the reality of that phrase that we are who you say we are would just rest on us. And as we put our eyes on this book, that you, Holy Spirit, would lead us and guide us and teach us. Lord, I, I don't care if it's pop savvy. I don't care if it's podcastable. We just want you to lead us and teach us. We want the revelation of the Christ to hit us. that we become more and more like you. Not just at church, but in our homes and in our jobs and in our conversations. We honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 3 is where we're going to pick up today. Jude will continue and say, dearly loved friends, I have been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share, but now I feel that I must write about something else. 
urging you to defend the truth of the good news. God gave this unchanging truth once for all time to his holy people. And I say this because some godless people have wormed their way in among you, saying that God's forgiveness allows us to live immoral lives. The fate of such people was determined long ago, for they have turned against our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I love how Jude will use this phrase, dearly loved friends, and I just want to sit there for a second. Because it's really the way he opens what is going to be a somewhat stern rebuke to the way they're handling themselves. And for us, it it would be as if we read it and said, it was written to vintage. Dearly loved friends, I got to talk to you about some stuff. It's not what I wanted to talk to you about. I had other ideas. But I, I want to I ask a question. If we really look at how he opens it and considering he's going to address tough issues, I want you to look at his posture towards these people. Because it's not combative and it's not pretentious. How many of you are like me that when you have to face something difficult or conflict-oriented, isn't it so easy to become combative, pretentious? And I love what he does with this phrase is he's communicating where his confrontation is actually coming from. It's coming from a desire to help them in a place that they're dangerously erring. The word he uses... Dearly loved friends, the word is beloved. Agape is the root of the word. It's important that we understand it because it's a word that it doesn't, I mean, we use the word love like it's just with so many different definitions, but this word has a very specific character to it. It's the, it's the idea of being fond of someone, like a lean towards them. And then an action that comes with it that is for their benefit. I can't agape somebody I don't like. I have to pre-choose, I'm fond of you. What I love is that his phrase, dearly loved friends, changes the tone of the rebuke. He doesn't say, you idiots, I need to talk to you about something. But he begins it with this, you dearly love friends. He's addressing them in tenderness and in mercy. I don't think Jude could have lashed out at them or been passive aggressive or snarky after that. Because he had settled himself in his love for them. That was going to become the tone of what he's going to say. And I want to pause and look at that simple reality and ask some questions for us. What motivates our confrontation? What posture do we use in confrontation? Do we wait till we're angry? Angry enough that it's just going to explode out of us? Any stuffers in the room? Are we so scared to confront things that we just would rather ignore it? You see, because that's not what Jude does either. And Paul will actually teach us in Ephesians 4 that we are to be con- confronting people, speaking the truth, but always in love. 
Anybody struggle with the belief that sometimes the truth is all that matters? See, but Paul will say, speak the truth in love. And I want to offer an idea for us that this verse in Ephesians 4 where Paul says, speak the truth in love, because it's really what Jude is modeling. He's speaking truth, but it's, it's in love. It's clothed in love. It's, it, it's corralled by love. He's not going to let anything come out of his mouth that's out of harshness or aggression, but that is such a human condition. I think this statement Paul makes, speak the truth in love, is a mandate for our lives, that we are to communicate truth, but always with love, wherein that without love, truth spoken is actually wrong. If we go back to this word agape, it mean, then all, if I put that together, it means if I'm not going to speak the truth with a fondness, a tenderness, a genuine desire to benefit somebody, I'm actually not allowed to speak it. If we want to know what that communication looks like, Paul will, will give us a clue in 1 Corinthians 13. Anybody been to a wedding and you heard love is... Patient, kind, we know the drill. Let me read it just so you know, because Paul actually wants to show us what love looks like on display. Love is patient, it's kind, it's not boastful or jealous or rude, it does not demand its own way, it's not irritable, irritable and keeps no record of when it has been wronged. It's never glad about injustice, but rejoices when truth wins out. Love never gives up, it never loses hope, and endures through every circumstance. Anybody want to join the I'm bad at love club? <laughs> Maybe a simpler way for us to view it is when our communication leaves that list, it's no longer his communication. If I juxtapose what Paul teaches in, in 1 Corinthians 13 with what he begins Ephesians 4 with, which is, Live in a manner worthy of your calling, which he says, I want you to line up to the fact that you're called by the name of Jesus, so be humble, be gentle, be patient. This word gentle here that he uses, gentleness, it's a qualifier of communication. It deals less with what you say, it deals specifically with how you say it. As a younger guy, I probably leaned more into what I would call a truth ethic. I would even say this. I was super gifted at walking into a room and going, I know what's wrong here. <laughs> Newsflash, that's not a gift. It's called a critical spirit. I had a boss who said this to me. It's not what you say, man. It's how you say it. It just, everybody, anybody have that when somebody says it, you're just like, oh, God. That, just, that one hurts. And Jude's really displaying that principle for us, that tough things do have to be said. I'm not calling for acquiescence away from difficulty. But the mechanism for how we say them has to be love and gentleness. Last week, we, we, we came upon a phrase, and we were looking at where, where Jude says, may you grow in, in mercy and peace and love. And I talked about what does it look like to grow in love, in the love of God. And this is the phrase that's been eating at me all week. 
that in order to grow in the love of God, it must mean that I am making less allowance for a lack of love in me, while at the same time making more allowance for a lack of love in others. I'm holding myself to a standard that is increasingly difficult, while at the same time I'm giving everyone around me a better pass. Jude will go on and say, I was planning to write to you about the salvation we all share. I love this because what he, what he says with this phrase, look, here was my plan. I was aiming at encouragement. I wanted to encourage you. I wanted to build you up. Can I say that I think we are running the risk of losing sight of that in our culture? Specifically in the church, we are running the risk of losing sight of the power of encouragement. I think encouraging each other is a fundamental aspect of helping each other endure the journey of discipleship. Maybe we say it differently. When you and I step into encouragement, we are distancing ourselves from the danger of critical analysis. Because it's impossible to step into a spirit of criticism at the same time stepping into a spirit of encouragement. Because when I step into encouragement, when you step into encouragement, we begin to see others differently. We're now looking for and finding what is valuable and worthy of being built up. Does it mean we refuse to say tough stuff? No. But it means we have changed out our perspective. We're actually on the lookout for what we can encourage instead of on the lookout for what we can criticize. There's a word we use in our culture, coaching. I think in its root, it's a beautiful idea. But we have to be careful that we're builders before we're critics. Why? Because that's how he handles us. I've been mesmerized over the last six months, not by what Jesus says to me, but actually by what he doesn't say to me. He leaves a lot of stuff on the table that he could deal with because he understands that I'm probably not at a spot that he can speak to it yet. If that's how he deals with us, then isn't that how we should deal with each other? And I, I know that that's not our native instinct. It's not, it's not the way we handle ourselves as, as, in human being, as human beings. It's not the way the marketplace handles. In the marketplace, you handle yourself that way, they tell you you're soft. But perhaps we just take this simple idea we see from Jude and we start to apply it. And our goal now becomes to be encouragers of those around us. I wake up every day and I have a goal. I'm trying to figure out how to encourage, how to build up what's around me. I apply that to my marriage. I apply that to my workplace environment. I apply it to my friendships. I apply it to people in the grocery store. Why? Because it's what he does. Which one of us has sat with the Lord and have him, had him list out the things he's irritated at? None of us. 
Instead, he will wait until the moment where we would come before him like David does and say, Lord, would you search me and know me? I I want to know what you see. Okay, great. I see this. I see this. But never does he ever step in and go, you need to fix this, this, and this. I'm so ridiculously tired of you. And you will challenge them. I want you to defend the truth. So what is he talking about? And why do I ask? Because I think that assuming Judah's inviting us into a defensive posture is not the right idea. It's so easy for us to grab onto this phrase, defend the truth, and be like, yes, I'm going to fight for it. But if we really consider what he's saying, he's urging this young church to promote the right truth about who Jesus is, defend the good news. Is it just me or does every once in a while it feel like we've lost sight of the fact that it was actually good news? You're no longer guilty of your sin. And it's not because of the way you live. It's because of who he is. You're invited if you, if you so take to step into his life, let him live through you. But the good news was, you are emancipated from sin. Your account has been settled with God because of Christ. That's the good news. Now, some of you might have grown up like I did. I grew up in a Pentecostal environment where uh, we were told every week how bad we were and required to repent every week. And I get the point, but I just want to remind us It was good news, and it still is good news. You and I are not standing before him in righteousness because of how good we are. We're standing before him in righteousness because of how good he is. And the only shot we have of doing this right is to settle and and live in the wisdom of that accepted tenderness where it's, you love me, broken as I am, and I just want to follow you. You see, Jude's wording here is, it's, a, it's, it's rooted in a word that was used for contest, almost an athletic struggle. It's like a wrestling match is really the word that comes to mind. So I was thinking about this because it's such an easy thing for us, the church, to get combative and want to go to war to defend the truth. But there are rules for engagement in a contest, are there not? How many know that, how many have ever done wrestling at all? You've done, you've wrestled a bit. Okay. Not very many of us, but a few. Enough to know that an elbow smash is illegal in wrestling. Maybe some of you are UFC fans. I like UFC. It's fun. Is it ever baffle anybody else that people can punch each other in the face and then hug when it's over? Be like, oh, it's great. Good job. I'm like, I I don't possess that skill set. You hit me in the face, I'm going to be mad. But this is the framework that Jude is presenting. And could could I suggest that our conflict in defending the truth should be waged the same way? Should be waged with this gentleness of soul, this strength of character. I'd love to even go one step further and say that I think it's actually the enemy of our souls that aims to make us combative and ugly and divisive and critical. So how do we defend our our faith? We promote the kind of living 
that reflects the right teaching. Your and my life in this culture is the greatest witness we'll ever have. The way we live before humanity is what reveals what we actually believe. And this is Paul's statement to Titus. I want you to live in a way that nobody even questions your understanding of God. So we stay close to the truth, we live it, and we encourage others into that path. And sometimes that's going to mean we need to tell them they're wrong. And Judah's pushing them to stand in the face of bad teaching and speak to it, but there's no anger or angst or malice. It's an invitation to have the courage to gently rebuke. Church, we live in a day right now where that is so needed. Truth is a moving target right now in our culture. And the only way we're going to be able to speak to truth, to promote the kind of living that reflects right teaching, is to be so clothed in love that we're gentle and tender in the way we deal with culture. If you're a believer, most of the world already knows where you stand. And I'd love to say this phrase to you. Being right doesn't make your communication right. There is a way we are to communicate. Learning to speak the truth in love. And then prove what we say with the way we live. That's a Holy Spirit art form. The only way you can do it is by being connected to the Holy Spirit. Because we are living in a day and in a time where the world at large is working. I think it's the enemy. Let's just call it for what it is. Working to remove the gravitational pull of a moral compass. So there is no such thing as wrong. There's no such thing as right. It's a choose-your-own-adventure story. That is not the work of the Holy Spirit. That is not the beautiful increase of tolerance in our culture. That is the robbery to humanity of something that will save them. Okay, so it's great to get rah-rah about that. It almost begins to feel political, but the answer is we have to be a people that are so gentle and tender in the culture that they would want to learn from us. We have to be a people that live lives in, in our private life, in our neighborhoods, that cause everybody around us that's lost to go, I kind of need what you have. Because if they're looking at our lives and their answer is, I don't know how you think what you have is working. You're just as messed up as I am. And we wonder why they're not asking. And so this is Paul's statement, promote the kind of living that reveals that teaching. And our king is our moral compass. And that's what Jude will begin to deal with in this culture. But we'll do that next week. Let's stand up.